Welcome, welcome back, welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Well, it is wonderful to be with you. Uh, my name is Mike. And uh, I'm just so delighted to get to meet so many of you who've partnered with us for nearly 15 years. We, we've been missionaries for 20 years. Uh, Laura and I have spent in the last 20 years, many, many years, working in over 70 wars and disasters. So I've taken my, world all, my wife all around the world. I'm a romantic fellow. But in the last nearly 20 years, any major humanitarian catastrophe or war disaster we we're often the first ones to arrive to coordinate life-saving humanitarian uh, aid. I work as a subject matter expert worldwide in the area of humanitarian diplomacy. I'm one of the few people around the world who gets to negotiate with armed groups, terror groups like Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda in times when aid workers or missionaries are kidnapped. I meet some, with some very interesting people, sometimes in countries when aid during a disaster or war is impeded, armed groups are attacking convoys. It is my job to, to help negotiate that people who are suffering uh, receive the aid that they deserve and that they need. Of course, I come home to my daughter, Ella. She's eight years old, and I, and I lose every single negotiation. So if you're a father of a daughter, I think you can identify with that. Our home is German-speaking Europe. I grew up in Germany as a missionary kid. German-speaking Europe has been my home since 1983, the dark ages. Um, and uh, it is my home, and that's from where we base now. The last few years, we've been able to plant three churches, two in Austria and one in Liechtenstein. And I just want to quickly tell you about when your team came to visit, they checked into the Ibis Hotel, and they met a young lady who checked her in. She worked at the hotel, Yasmina. She was really impressed with the team of Americans and never met so many Americans at once. We briefly mentioned the church to her, but that was really no, of no interest to her. But then the COVID pandemic hit. And she got laid off from the hotel, and she spent a lot of time online. And she came across one of our church plants ads to watch a live stream where I was preaching and where I encouraged people, hey, go online and order a Bible. Yasmina did it. And Yasmina watched our services without ever talking to us for six months. And then she gave her life to the Lord online. And just a few months ago, I had the privilege of baptizing Yasmina. Isn't that so cool? So sometimes you go, even go on a mission trip and you don't even meet the people that you reach and that you impact. But that is how God works. And I'm so delighted that you partner with us worldwide in missions. Well, this evening, I want to talk to you and tell you first about the legend of St. Andrew's Castle. St. Andrew's Castle. Well, maybe I should tell you another story. I had so many stories this morning. I spoke to the old folks, and I wanted to tell so many stories. Maybe I should talk to you about another adventure. Perhaps I can talk to you about the day I screamed like a girl when I came under gunfire in Central Africa. I could bore you with a pretty long story when a perfectly good cup of coffee was detonated 
because of a car bomb going off. Well, a car bomb going off just a few feet away from us. I could be uncivil and send you to sleep with a story that I told here about 10 years ago when I was in an Al-Qaeda training camp and I got to share the gospel. I could talk to you about the day just a few weeks ago when I looked out of my window just to realize that the people below me were shooting up in the air. <laughs> I could talk to you about the rather exciting time when I convinced a few guys who were guarding a fort to let me in. But then I would also explain to you that I had to tell them that I was an Egyptian movie star and I had to sign autographs. It's always for the sake of the gospel, so it's, it's allowed. But I fortunately have no time to explain. I can tell you about the time I was reunited with one of my closest friends who I thought had died. But then we would lose all night because I'd have to tell you the long story that also involved how I had to use the jet of a drug dealer to get to that earthquake zone where my friend had, uh, had perished. So I really have no time. So let me skip ahead and tell you the story of St. Andrew's Castle. There they stand to this day the ruins of St. Andrew's Castle. Built some 800 years ago, the castle swelled out of a rock along a small beach and the adjacent rocky waters of the North Sea. But what's interesting is what's below the castle. You see, carved out of a solid rock, you will find to this day the infamous Bottle Dungeon. Exactly like a bottle, the dungeon was narrow on the top and wide on the bottom and this was the notorious prison that housed the scoundrels and the villains of the time. And there they waited in this dark hole, in a hopeless pit, the villains of St. Andrew's Castle. You see, rarely was anyone given a pardon. And legend has it that no one ever escaped the dungeon of St. Andrew's Castle without the help from someone on the outside. Not a single person in this time of the Middle Ages ever escaped that dungeon without the help from someone on the outside. Tonight, as I talk about missions, I want to ask you, if you're a Christ follower, if you can identify with being stuck in a hopeless pit. You see, every single one of us should be able to look back on our lives before Christ and remember that because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we deserved a life sentence to be stuck in a hopeless pit and to experience eternal separation from God. There comes a time when we just realize that it doesn't matter how hard we try, we cannot crawl out of this dungeon on our own without the help from someone on the outside. No good words, no words of apology, no good deeds, no pulling oneself up on our bootstrap will ever be able to rescue a sinner from the hopelessness and the pit in which they lie. But see, there's good news, and that is what we even celebrated this evening as we sang, that Jesus came to the rescue. That's why David celebrated in Psalm 40, he lifted me out of a pit of despair. Read about the Apostle Paul. Paul writes, Jesus gave his life for our sins in order to rescue us. And as we talk about missions, as you send people out, as you and teams go out, it is our job to find people who are stuck in a pit, who can't help themselves on their own, and to proclaim the good news that Jesus came to rescue. 
And today, I want to turn on the spotlight on a group of people who, to this day, are stuck in a hopeless pit. Often people ask me, Mike, you've seen so much tragedy. You've seen so much human suffering. Why don't you just quit? Aren't you tired of it? And my answer is always the same. I'm not. Because what I get to see day in and day out, that in hopeless situations and incredible crises, God is always active. You see, in human suffering, God doesn't look the other way. That's on the macro level, on the international, the global scale of an earthquake or a war. But I can also tell you right now, here in Wisconsin, in your personal emergencies, in your personal crises, in times of loneliness, in times of anxiety, in times of bankruptcy, in times of depression, your God is active. He doesn't look the other way in times of suffering. He is present. And my goal here tonight is that as I talk to you about some world events and many of the world events you actually have possibly even seen on the news, I want to kind of lift the curtain and show you how God was active in situations where politicians said there is no hope for this people group or when the news reporters say there is no hope in this situation, I want to reveal to you that God is always active. So today, allow me to briefly address a group of people. There are over 65 million people of this people group, and globally, one in every 122 humans of this people group uh, belongs, uh, one in every 122 humans on this earth belong to this people group. If you would take these 65 million people and put them into one country, you would have created the 24th largest country on earth. These people come from all different kinds of backgrounds. They speak different languages, look differently, but they have a few things in common. They're afraid. They're desperate. They have nowhere to go. They're rarely welcomed. And they're lost. They're lost physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And perhaps you've never really met any one of this people group personally, but I bet that you've heard of a very famous family that was part of this people group and played a significant role in human history. You've heard their story before. Their experience sounds like out of a modern Netflix TV show. It was a political crisis and social tension that forced this couple on a journey. It was a journey that today modern doctors would never recommend a pregnant woman to take. And they weren't welcomed. They had to learn to rough it. And then at the peak of the crisis when their son had just been born, they had to flee their country and seek refuge somewhere else in order to avoid being murdered. And their names? Their names were Mary and Joseph. And the toddler's name was Jesus. You see, Jesus, as a toddler, was a refugee. And one of the first refugees in recorded history, definition of a refugee is very simple. It's a person who is outside of his or her own country of nationality and who is unwilling or unable to return home because of a well-founded fear of persecution. 
And just like Jesus and his family so many years ago, every single night, 44,000 people have to pack up their belongings, leave their home, often under the cover of darkness, to escape murdering crews and rape and slavery and join the 65 million refugees just to survive. Interestingly enough, today the wars that we see around the world have caused more people to flee their homes than in any other time in human history. There are over 35 million children who have to flee their homes just this year. Perhaps you've watched the news this last decade and the last 10 years. The place where there was really the single largest driver of mass displacement was the conflict in Syria in the Middle East. And as people fled their homes from ISIS, from Daesh, from the Al-Nusra Front, from the Assad regime, most of these refugees transited or stayed in a place that's been known since the Bible times as the Valley of Tears. Valley of Tears is a real place. I was just there, and in about 10 days, I'm heading back to the Valley of Tears. The Valley of Tears is in Lebanon, and it's the Valley of Tears that today is home to over 400,000 refugees living in hopeless situations. Remember the first time as I walked through the Valley of Tears as the Civil War was raging? At night as I was going to meet someone, all I could hear as I went from tent to tent was the screaming and the crying, the weeping. The Valley of Tears is home to 400,000 people who have no hope, who are traumatized, who lost family members, who witness unspeakable murder, who have no hope. Many of them from unreached people groups have never heard the, yeah, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Valley of Tears, you will hear even the smallest child being able to tell you stories that could not be repeated. Here in the Valley of Tears, I lived through a, a snowstorm, because even in the Middle East, there can be snowstorms. And the next day, I helped bury 20 babies who died in that snowstorm because there was no adequate shelter and warmth, because children were wearing flip-flops and wearing T-shirts because they're still simply wearing the clothing that they had worn six months earlier when they fled the violence. Dear friends, as I think most of you would agree with me when people ask me, hey, are refugees terrorists? I have to say emphatically, no. Refugees are the people who are fle fleeing terrorism. But there's something else that's been going on in the Valley of Tears that will not be reported in the news. It's an incredible story. But I've seen in the last decade that in the Valley of Tears, mourning is slowly being turned into joy and laughter. It's because of churches like you that have enabled us to serve well over 150,000 refugees in the Valley of Tears with food, with building people's homes, with providing heating sources and fuel to keep homes warm. We've been able to place thousands of girls who were never allowed by ISIS to attend school. We've placed thousands of children and girls into Christian schools. They come from Muslim backgrounds, and now for the first time, they're learning how to read and to write, and they're learning about Jesus. We are offering trauma counseling to children. We are taking kids out of the refugee situation, and we take them to summer camps, Christian camps, where they get to just enjoy nature and, and love and, and get to just hear about Jesus. And we 
do therapeutic feeding programs because often when the kids come to us, they are so malnourished that we cannot just give them normal food. We are able to do it. We're able to see joy and laughter in the valley of tears because of people like you. Recently had tea with a mother. She was a widow. Her family was, her her husband was killed by ISIS. We were able to build her a home. We were able to give her a a job. We were able to put her kids in school, and these kids are now even attending university. It was because we were able to give them a scholarship. Hundreds of families, thousands of families have hope. One of the young ladies that I, I recently met was a young girl named Malika. Malika in Arabic just means princess, and she's just a really beautiful little girl. When she was five years old, she was living in near Aleppo in Syria when ISIS came and lined up her family. And in front of this little five-year-old girl, beheaded her grandparents, her parents, and her siblings. Malika was the only one allowed to live. I've seen this around the world that terror groups will always often do this just to, uh, you know, just to leave one person alive so they can tell the horrible story of what they've witnessed. So Malika didn't know where to go. So she would sleep at night and walk in the end of the day trying to find the refugee camp where we were working at about 100 miles away. And as Malika, she was holding my hand. She w- we were sitting under the shade of a tree, and she was telling me the story, and I think I responded like most of you guys would respond. I cried. After 20 years of witnessing some of the worst wars in this world, I'm still able to cry. Because it's just unbelievable what little children have to endure. So she says, well, Mike, why are you crying? And I said, well, Malika, I'm just trying to imagine you all alone, afraid, walking through the desert looking for hope. And she said, well, Mike, I, I wasn't alone. This little Muslim girl would sleep during the day to hide from ISIS. But then at night, Jesus would wake her up. Jesus would wake her up and take her by the hand and told her not to worry. And he would walk her through the desert to a safe place. Then she would sleep, and the next day she would wake up. And she said, Mike, Jesus led me after many, many days, to the camp. Jesus, I love him because Jesus gave me hope. And Jesus told me, someday all my tears will be wiped away. We were able to reunite Malika with her aunt and uncle who had fled earlier. He was adopted by them, and I've gotten to see Malika over the years. She's growing into an incredible young lady with incredible testimony who's experienced God's grace, and her and her entire family are following Jesus Christ. Dear friends, you know, there, there's a danger for us as the modern America church. And it's not terrorism. It's not ISIS. The problem in the wealthy American church is that when we view human suffering, when we look at catastrophes and we expect that politicians to solve these problems for us, I believe that you and I someday will be judged to be on the wrong side of history. You see, it is the church that has a role to serve those who are suffering. 
It's God who cares about refugees. It's God who says in Jeremiah, set things right between people. Rescue victims from their exploiters. It's God who says in Isaiah, give refugees sanctuary. It's God who says in Isaiah, be a safe place for those on the run from the killing fields. It's Jesus who tells us to feed the hungry, to give to the thirsty, and to clothe the hungry. And my friends, there's something we cannot outsource to the world or the politics, and that has to be present in times of human suffering, to meet the physical and the emotional needs of people when everyone else has given up on them. Many years ago, the, the sun had set, and we stepped off the plane, and we arrived really in the middle of nowhere. We were about 1,600 miles away from civilization. We were in the Sahara Desert. It was right there in Algeria where Al-Qaeda was back with a vengeance and drawing really new dangerous battle lines across Saharan Africa. I was told that somewhere here in the Sahara we would find the forgotten people. The forgotten people, the Sahrawi, about 160,000 people who had fled the violence in their home country, who had been living in the desert, were surrounded not only by the Sahara, but also by the world's longest landmine wall, preventing them from ever escaping. Told that the Sahrawi were desperate, it was an unreached people group to this point. No one had been able to penetrate the camps with the good news of Jesus. And we were told that people were incredibly desperate in need of food, water, education, and medical supplies. And indeed, as I arrived for the first time in my life, I saw children, wherever I went, chewing on pieces of rope. Just chewing on rope. And so we began to ask the kids, why are you doing it? And the answer was the same. Well, we love to play our favorite game. It's pretending to eat. Hunger. Destroying. Families and parents not knowing how to take care of the children. After many confusion and detours, we finally arrived in these different camps, the smaller clusters in total 160,000 people. We'd found the forgotten people. We had found their home, and we made it our home. We lived in a tent with a refugee family. They, they shared whatever little they had with us, and we ate what the refugees ate. And one of the festivals we got to eat as the guest of honor, Fortunately, you guys don't do this at Oak Creek Assembly. But as a guest of honor, I got to receive the raw camel kidney. There's usually always one smart aleck in the group that would say, oh, I bet it tastes like chicken. No. It tastes like raw camel kidney. It's just absolutely disgusting. But it was their gift, and I accepted it. And during the day, we just began doing home visits. Refugees were welcoming us. Every time we entered their tent, they would spray us with a little perfume, offer to, to wash our feet because of the, the sandstorms. And we just began to talk about life. We showed family pictures. We drank. For every tent we visited, we had to drink seven cups of hot tea. It's 140 degrees outside, and you have to drink hot tea. It's just amazing, right? That's their Gatorade, I guess. But we just began to to pray with people. Every tent we visited, people said, we, we need a miracle. And we laid hands on people. We experienced incredible miracles. And we began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a people group who had never heard the name of Jesus. It was a few weeks into it. Uh, I was asleep. And one thing you must know about me, I can sleep. 
I've slept through, I think, three bombings. I've slept through two earthquakes. I think one category five hurricane. When I sleep, I sleep. It's just what I do. But I wake up, and I'm kind of like midair. And what had happened is these guys who had covered their faces, they were like, I don't know, mask of some sort. They had their AK-47s. They had cut open the back of my tent, had grabbed me, and throw me in the back of the pickup truck. And then they drove me into the middle of the Sahara Desert. Now, you've seen that movie when the guy gets blindfolded and thrown in the back of a pickup truck. It usually doesn't end very well for that dude, right? So about 30 minutes into it, we drive through the desert, and I, op- I finally get the thing taken off my eyes, and I realize I am very clearly in a, in a terrorist training camp, a bunch of armed dudes, you know, shooting practice and just uh, kind of a hidden facility, and I was thrown into kind of an interrogation tent. There was only two chairs and a desk between them. I was forced to sit down. A few moments later, this commander walked in. He sat down across from me without any welcome, without any kind of Arabic greeting. He just pointed his big finger at me and asked, why are you here? Why are you here? Well, as your model missionary, I couldn't lie, right? I said, sir, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm a missionary. I'm a Christian missionary. I'm a pastor. And I'm an ambassador from God. And I am, I've been sent here to deliver a message from God to the forgotten people. This message was written by God in the book of Psalm in the Bible, chapter 9. And it says this, the needy will not always be forgotten. And the hope of the poor will not perish forever. Sir, I'm delivering this message to the forgotten people because to our God, there is not such a thing as a forgotten people. God has a plan for the forgotten people. God wants to see you prosper. I'm here to declare that Jesus Christ is the hope for the Sahrawi. We want to see churches established, and we want to see your bellies filled, but also your hearts filled with love. Some of you are thinking, that's a dumb thing to say to an Al-Qaeda guy. And you're right. Boy, was that dumb. And they got really quiet. A very awkward pause. In fact, with, with the exception of this ceiling fan that was kind of wheezing under the oppressive heat of the desert, it was completely quiet. But suddenly, the man, he jumps up. He runs around the desk. He grabs me by the arm and he says, Mike, so help me Allah. If you come and if you help my people, you can say and you can do whatever you like. You see, Proverbs says the gift opens the door for the giver. And I've seen it over and over again when we come alongside of people who are hopeless, who have felt forgotten, who have the feeling that no one will ever care for them. When we come and we give them the gift of compassion, when we meet their physical and their emotional needs, their hearts are softened for the sake of the gospel. And this is what we have seen amongst the formerly forgotten people, the Sahrawi. Churches established. People are filled and fed and are healthy. Children are born healthy. 
And we're seeing Saharawi leaving the camps to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as missionaries. We are seeing God do incredible things. Friends, even as you turn on the news and you see hopeless situations, when the reporter says there's nothing to be done, when the politician says it's a hopeless, hopeless cause, friends, our God is active. He doesn't give up. A few weeks ago, I was in Lebanon and Beirut, and I was visiting one of the Muslim background believer pastors who had led to the Lord during the crisis, who was working with us to meet uh, a lot of the educational needs of children, especially girls coming of, out of Raqqa, Syria, the ISIS-controlled uh, territory. And uh, the pastor said, Mike, would you just want to briefly greet uh, the women's discipleship class? And I thought, yeah, I'll meet those three ladies. I mean, I've worked in the Middle East. It's not like you see huge revivals every day taking place. And so we began to walk up this, like, spiral staircase to the top of the roof. A lot of the meetings take place outside in the winter because it's a little, little more comfortable. And they had no like, electricity. And we walked up to the roof. And the roof was probably as big as this roof above you. And I opened the door, and at first I'm a bit blinded by the sun, but as I step out, all I see is a sea of women. 300 women from ISIS-controlled territory with their Arabic Bibles in front of them being discipled. Most of them met Jesus in a dream or in a vision. Friends, we might say there is no hope from those who come from ISIS-controlled territory. But do you think our God is intimidated? Do you believe our God cannot save? I can report to you those people are on fire, and they're raising their children in the ways of God. And I believe we're going to see an awakening in the places where ISIS tried to destroy everything. Our God is active. Amen. Tell you one last story. Is it okay, Dan? Am I out of time? You sure? You guys can just get up and leave anytime you want. During the Middle East refugee crisis, this happens to this day as people try to leave, you know, Libya or Syria, the Middle East. It's often the summer times that they will try to flee the violence of their homes, and they will pay people smugglers. Uh, to, to take a boat on the Mediterranean. These are not seaworthy vessels, and surprisingly, refugees have to scrape together all the last cents that they have. They're fleeing terrorism. They're fleeing violence. Christians are fleeing Christian persecution in the Middle East, and it costs about $5,000 to ride on one of these boats. These are middle-class families who take all their, all their savings just to get away from serial rapists and mass murderers. So people smugglers who run these transportation rings, I've dealt with these people smugglers, are very, very evil people. And what they will do is they will say, well, the Mediterranean looks a little bumpy. For $500, we will sell you a life vest. Now, what parent will not take the last $500 or that wedding ring or that last piece of jewelry to buy your child a life vest just to get away? Of course, often the boats go out into the harbor in the middle of the sea, and then a speedboat will come, and the people smugglers will get off the boat, and the boat will just kind of sink slowly. We were so amazed that when we walked the shores of the Mediterranean, how many refugee children had drowned or were wearing life vests. 
And so we approached the bodies and took one of the life vests, and then we took another one and another one, and we cut them open. And we discovered the life vests were filled with newspapers. I think that really summarizes how evil people deal with human suffering. The gangsters take advantage of it. They find ways to make money. Politicians look at human suffering and often love to cause fear and use these horrible situations to intimidate people. And my question here in closing, what about us? What is the role of the church in hopeless situations? Friends, I believe the church is the only institution who can look evil, who can look suffering in the eyes without being afraid. We are the only institution that will survive. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So imagine if you and I, every time we turn on the news, we do not afford ourselves luxury and say, you know what, it's just so bad out there, I'm just not going to watch the news anymore. What's if we do not allow ourselves the luxury of looking away in times of suffering, but we will say, God, you and you alone are active and you can do something. Imagine. If you and I would say, you know what, when everyone else has given up, God is active. I've seen in my own personal life how God is active in situations of hopelessness. Think of the times where I've just been overwhelmed by having to witness, witness executions. I've witnessed uh, stonings. I've, I've witnessed just hundreds of people starving and mass graves. And, you know, God was present and active with me in that time. And through his word in Psalm 71, he reminded me, though you made me see many bitter things, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. When a car bomb exploded a few years ago, his word was present with me, and his word reminded me in Proverbs 3, do not be afraid of sudden terror, for the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep you from falling. When just a few years ago, a government official was pointing his gun in my face with his finger on the trigger, God was present and spoke to me that moment through his word, Romans 8. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Danger, sword, no. I am sure that nothing can separate me from the love of God. When Laura and I were stuck in an earthquake, the building was coming in and caving in. We couldn't get the door open to get out. God was present, and he reminded us through his word in Psalm 46, we will not fear. Though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved from the heart of the sea, God is our refuge and strength. When I was held in a prison cell by corrupt police on false charges, God's word spoke to me in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil and falsely against you. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is in heaven. When Al-Qaeda should have known our whereabouts, they were following us, but God kept them consistently in the dark and us always one step ahead. God, in his word, reminded us from Jeremiah 20, the Lord is a feared warrior, therefore my pursuers will stumble and will not overcome me. Friend, I don't know what you are facing today. 
I'm not going to diminish anyone's suffering when you are facing a challenge, great or small. Here I stand in front of you as a witness that God is present in human suffering. You might feel alone. But as a Christ follower, it is absolutely impossible to be alone. God is active with you. And often he uses his word to strengthen you and to encourage you in times of need. My prayer for you is very simple. May the Lord of the harvest richly bless every single one of you and grant you strength. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.